When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. You're tuned in to the Project Upland Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Larson. Welcome to the show for episode number 61. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by our friends at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, the finest rough grouse and woodcock hunting experience located in northern Minnesota. You haven't experienced grouse camp until you've experienced it at Pine Ridge. Find out more about them at pineridgegrousecamp.com. And by Dr. Callers, you're going to hear a lot more about Dr. today. We will get to them shortly, but for now, we'll remind you that Doctra provides a full line of dog training and handling products and accessories, including the Pathfinder Mini, which is available now, the GPS collar, the Pathfinder 
now available in the mini version. Find out more about it at dogtra.com. And by Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food, made with the highest levels of protein and fat to promote lean muscle and sustain energy for peak performance in your bird dog. Find out more about Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food at yukonuba.com. And by Gordian Sons Outfitters. Based in Texas, Gordian Sons is the leading hunting and fly fishing outfitter in the U.S., known for stocking best-in-class gear that's sourced from around the globe. Their knowledgeable staff have the expertise to ensure you the best possible time outdoors, from hunting and fly fishing to conservation and outdoors expertise. Gordian Sons has you covered. Find out more about them at gordiansons.com. And by Dakota 283 Kennels, unparalleled pet protection, kennels that are built to last a lifetime. One-piece rotomold design, frame steel doors, not too big, about the right size. And they got a number of different sizes for you. See the whole line at dakota283.com and use the promo code PU50DD. That'll get you 50% off a Dine or Dash product with purchase of a kennel. Always free shipping from dakota283.com. All right, this week's winner of the podcast giveaway, Ryan McIntosh. T-shirt, headed your way, buddy. Thank you for sharing an episode of the Project Up the Podcast, and thank you to everybody for listening. You could be next week's winner. All you have to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show. Leave us a rating, leave us a review, subscribe to the podcast, share the podcast post, send us a feedback or a guest suggestion. We always love to hear from our listeners. Send me an email at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. All right, only one announcement today, and that's because it is April 30th. Project Eplin has been proud to be the official media partner for the Pheasants Forever Bird Dogs for Habitat campaign. Today is the final day. I checked the voting the other day. My breed was not on top. That's all right. It's all for a good cause. Today, April 30th, if you're listening to this podcast on release day, you got one more shot to go make a donation for your breed and for Pheasants Forever. Go to pheasantsforever.org, support a great organization. Even if you miss the deadline, any money going to PF is good money spent. They will put it to work for you and the rest of us. So thank you again to Pheasants Forever for giving us that opportunity. We are proud supporters of your organization, and we hope our listeners are as well. All right, here we go. Today's episode of the show is for the bird dog trainers, bird dog handlers. I know that's not everybody out there, but if you have a bird dog or you're thinking about getting a bird dog, I think you will enjoy this episode. Our guest today is Pete Fisher, Senior Consultant for Dogtra. What does a Senior Consultant for Dogtra do? We'll let Pete tell you that. Today's conversation is all about remote training collars and dog training, how the two go hand in hand, how we can use collars to our advantage, how not to use them, and what we can expect to find in some of the Dogtra lineup as well as other products out there. Let's jump into our conversation today Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, Senior Consultant from Dogtra, Pete Fisher. All right, here we go. Pete Fisher of Dogtra, welcome to the Project Upland Podcast. How are you today, sir? I'm good. Uh, a little bit snowy up here in Minnesota today, for, for especially for this time of the year, Nick, but thanks for having me. <laughs> it's my pleasure to have you on. I was going to start there. I know you're in Minnesota, and I know you're to the south of me, which 
wouldn't always be the case, but I know that you are getting more snow than I. So right yeah. now we are still, bra- yeah. we're still bracing for impact. I know it's supposed to get ugly. It's really, really windy here. What's the weather like down there, Pete? Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty nasty. It's, uh, pretty much everything is shut down in the area here. Uh, we're, we're, it's snowing, but more than anything, Nick, it's the wind. I mean, the wind is blowing at 25 gusts into 40 miles an hour. So you can imagine, I live out in the country, so you can imagine what that's like. So uh, it's the winter that does not want to end. Yeah, absolutely. So with that on, with that in mind, Pete, you, we mentioned that you're from Minnesota. Give us a little bit more detail, kind of put us on the map, tell us where, where you are, generally speaking, and and then jump into your position with Doctra and talk a little bit about what you do for Doctra. Sure. Um, I'm northwest of Minneapolis, St. Paul by, uh, let's just say about an hour, hour and a half, depending on where you are in Minneapolis, St. Paul. But uh, the nearest uh, city of any size is is St. Cloud. Um, and so I'm probably uh, 20 minutes or so from St. Cloud. I live out in the country. And um, on at one time, I was on 360 acres. That's what I owned out here when I had a, a dog training business for 30 some years. And uh, so that's the the location, I guess I would say I'm central Minnesota, Nick, and um, oh, a pretty rural, and, and I like it that way. Yeah. So um, in regards to what I do for Dogtra, I do some of everything for them. I've had an association with the company since 2001, and um, I've, I've done uh, almost everything for the company, so to speak. I got introduced a while back at by one of our rep groups uh, when I was doing some uh, education, some updating on product and on the different features and functions. And and the uh, individual from the rep group introduced me as Pete Fisher with the dog trick company. Pete's kind of the Swiss army knife. He can kind of do some of everything for the company. So, and that's kind of stuck with me for a while now. So uh, most, uh, mostly I work out of a home office here, Nick, uh, out in, in Minnesota. And I, uh, I do have to travel for them some, uh, any of the major trade shows, shot show, pheasant fest, uh, especially if it's outdoor related, I'm, I'm going to be at that show and, and, uh, for lack of better terms, one of the, the lead people at it, uh, working, staffing the booth, answering questions, talking to people, networking uh, at those at those events. Excellent. Well, you know, Swiss Army Knife of Dogtra, that's that's not a bad uh, nickname to have there, yeah. Pete. I mean, you're use, yeah. useful, effective, many things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do, uh, besides working the, the events for them, um, I help them uh, design some of the product. I test all of it. Uh, I manage our field staff, pro staff which is quite large, almost 200 people strong. Um, I, I primarily deal with the owners. If you looked at my title, I'm called senior consultant. I don't know if I want at this point in my life, I want to be called senior in anything, but kind of goes with <laughs> being with them for so long and doing so many different things. And actually, when I was in the dog training business, Nick, I actually worked for this company on a part-time basis. Um, I have a toll-free number in here that the company supplies and they send people over to that number uh, to, to ask questions on the product, uh, features, functions, how do I use it uh, for, you know, when I get started with my dog, because we offer a lot of information online and manuals and videos, but sometimes you just need to be able to talk to somebody that was in the business training dogs and, and it makes them, uh, makes you able to answer questions they, they might have in a video, can't always do all that nor reading something. So uh, I also do that uh, for them every once in a while. I, I get stuck with the irate customer that wants to talk to somebody higher up than customer service. And and uh, I'm over the years of doing what I do, Nick, uh, I've become a pretty good fence mender. And so uh, <laughs> that's probably my least 
desirable thing I do for the company, but I, I do have to deal with some irate customers every once in a while. And I also do a lot of the customer service training over the phone, or they fly me out to California a couple times a year, and and uh, I train the customer service uh, people that answer the phones and emails at Dogtra. So um, that's kind of a snapshot of what I do for the company, kind of the highlight, so to speak. Yeah, it's always tough to sum up somebody's daily responsibilities, a job in, yeah. in, a, in a couple of sentences. Yeah. So I think you did a really good yeah. job. And I think people have a, have an idea of what you're doing, Pete, but you know, really the product testing, the design, the customer service, you know, answering questions, those are all things that, you know, when I heard that that's kind of the stuff that you were doing, that's what made me really excited to have you on the podcast because our listeners have lots of questions about remote training callers, dog yeah. training in general and your experience uh, with dogtra and just in with bird dogs in general is is going to be i think very valuable and we will spend a good bit of time talking about dogtra and dogtra products but to start let's rewind quickly just for a moment and tell people a little bit about your experience with bird dogs now we touched on central minnesota are you born and raised there pete <laughs> Yeah, yes, I was born and raised in a little town of Avon, Minnesota. Uh, went to high school over here at Albany and um, started working some construction jobs right out of high school and knew that uh, I wasn't uh, going to go on anywhere else to, to college. Back in those days, uh, Nick, that was not something uh, easy to do, especially coming from a very blue-collar family uh, upbringing like I had. So I started working construction and uh, worked for a local contractor here that built roads and did that for a couple of years. And I always tell people I was a flagman is what I did a lot of, Nick. So I stood <laughs> on the road and I had a long, a lot of opportunities to sit and think, man, what am I ever going to do with the rest of my life? And um, <laughs> and uh, I always tell people it was one of the worst and best jobs I ever had in my life. You, you stand in one spot uh, with minimal amount of brakes, flagging, stopping traffic so the scrapers and and uh, equipment can cross out here on Interstate 94. Uh, that's what I did. You you stand there for 10 and 12 hours a day with, with a couple little potty breaks and water breaks and a lunch break in there. And man, you start thinking about what, what am I ever going to do here? And, uh, ironically enough, I always had, uh, interest in, uh, the outdoors and dogs. And, uh, that was the path that I followed. I ran into an old timer said, you should go over and, uh, talk to Lorne Martins over in Stock Rapids. And, uh, Lorne was a retriever trainer. Uh, he's now gone. He's actually in the retriever trainers hall of fame. And that's how I started my career in dog training. And, I worked for Lawrence for uh, a couple summers, and then I was fortunate to get uh, employed as a as a vet tech, even though they didn't call it as a vet tech back then. You didn't go to school for it, Nick. And I got uh, trained on the job to be to do veterinary technician work at a local veterinary clinic, and uh, I worked there, and it was a, a really good experience. Uh, I did some of everything. I mean, I did lab work, I did X-ray work for the uh, veterinary clinic, I did. Uh, uh, vaccinations. I mean, you name it. I was kind of the Swiss army knife there. I helped out with surgeries. Uh, you, I did some of everything. Great experience. But again, there was really no future in it for me. And I started training dogs on my own and um, started out just training them even when I was still at the veterinary clinic. And I would do it evenings and I didn't have a facility and I just pick them up at people's houses and train them for the uh, couple hours in the evening, a group of them. And then I'd drop them back off. And at the end of the month, I'd stick a bill in uh, in the doorway and and they'd uh, send me a check. So that's kind of how I got started in the business. Very interesting. I, now, I don't know if in today's day and age, 2019, if a construction flagger <laughs> could be listening to something while they're standing in the same spot for 10 to 12 hours, but I, it gets me <laughs> gets me thinking, I wonder if we have any uh, flaggers out there listening to this podcast. Any advice for that, yeah. Pete? <laughs> well, 
you know, again, it's uh, it, the payback then, Nick, uh, this was in the in the 70s, uh, late 70s. Um, I don't know what minimum wage was back then. Minimum wage is probably a dollar and a half an hour. We made seven dollars and fifty cents an hour wow. uh, working. Yeah, I mean, that was huge money. And I mean, we, I made a lot more money than most anybody I graduated with from high school. But uh, it, it, it it's, uh, you know, very, very noble uh, thing to do stand there somebody's got to do it stand there and stop traffic but it's it's a long day and uh and like i said had a had an opportunity to do a lot of soul searching and think is this what i want to do the rest of my life and that's what i tell when i'm uh, the local school will have me come in and uh on career day and i normally do the entrepreneur uh piece and i say you know it was one of the best and worst jobs I ever had in my life because it gave me the opportunity to think about what i really wanted to do and find my passion and, and that's what i did nick and I uh, was in the dog training business for 30 years and, and grew the business, went, took it from, I thought I was really doing well. And I had two, three dogs in for, for training. And the name of the business is Fisher's Kennels and Hunt Club. And I sold it uh, in 2009 to one of my assistants. Craig Klein owns it now and it's still in existing. You can find it at fisherskennels.com and took it from a handful of dogs in training. And at the point where I sold it, we could handle 40 plus dogs. So it wasn't just me anymore training. I had individuals working for me. So that's how it grew in 30 some years, Nick. So you mentioned retrievers, Pete, and I know you've spent, you know, 30 years, 30 plus years training retrievers and mm-hmm. dealing with bird dogs. Did I get the sense from your background that were you were you upland bird hunting, waterfowl hunting when you were a youngster or did that all come later with the with de- delving into the bird dog world? Yeah, good good question, Nick. It actually came a little bit later in my life uh because I was uh grew up in a family where my father of of uh, if you can believe this was not a hunter. And uh, he was like a lot of uh, men back in those days. He just didn't have a lot of, he was a blue collar guy. He was a machinist by trade and he didn't, uh, they didn't spend a lot of time. Uh, they worked. <laughs> okay. And sure. didn't spent a lot of time doing uh, the things that uh, hunting and fishing. And my dad wasn't that way. He was involved with local politics. He was the mayor of the little town of Avon almost his whole life. And uh, so I got raised in a, in a family that uh, did have guns, but we, my father was not an avid hunter by any stretch of the imagination, but I was fortunate. My brother, Mike, uh, got hooked up with some individuals that like to hunt. And so my, uh, brother, Mike is really the one that started me, uh, hunting when I was just out of high school. When I was in high school, I, I was like a lot of young guys back then. I played high school sports. I loved football. And that was kind of what consumed me at that point. But then knowing when I graduated from high school, that was all done. And, and I explained a little bit, uh, the path I took, but no, I, I did not grow up in a, in a family that did a lot of hunting. Uh, but then when I did start, uh, you know, under the guidance of my brother, Mike, we hunted everything. I mean, we hunted upland birds, pheasants, did some grouse hunting back in the day and then waterfall hunting. And, uh, so I've done some of everything and I, I, uh, I deer hunt as well. So my passion over the years has always been as a waterfall hunter, but I've, I love the, uh, I love the upland hunt. And quite honestly, I do more pheasant hunting now than I do anything. Sure. What do you love about what do you love about bird hunting with retrieving dogs, flushing dogs, Pete? Um, you know, I like any dog that works good, Nick. I, um, I I've always the reason I probably be, uh, not probably the reason I became a retriever trainer is you know the Labrador Retriever uh, historically has been the number one dog registered with the American Kennel Club. Yep. Uh, so there's more of them to train, Nick. And I mean, <laughs> uh, it's just plain and simple. Uh, and I think back to my my first. Uh, uh, very first, I missed one little piece here. My first experience with a dog trainer uh, was actually with a pointing dog trainer, a guy by the name of Ed Schnettler. And Ed was a friend of the family. Again, he's long gone. But uh, Ed was very instrumental in uh, developing the Red Setter breed. And I don't know, are you very familiar with uh, the Red Setters, Nick? I, I'm just 
I'm aware of them a little bit familiar. I know one guy that has one, but that's about it, Pete. Yeah. And, and, uh, I'll just give you a, a, a little, uh, kind of a, uh, little education on, yeah. on the Irish setter or the red setter. The, the Irish setter became quite popular, I believe back in about the fifties and sixties and, uh, you know, probably with the, the movie big red and Irish red and all those TV shows. And that took off and everybody wanted to have an Irish setter. Most of the Irish setters back in those days, they just bred them for, for looks and they were, uh, bench dogs, big dogs. And unfortunately when, when breeds become very popular, uh, a lot of indiscriminate breeding. And so unfortunately the, the, the Irish setter really lost most of its, its uh, hunting instinct when it got so popular back in that era. And what a number of individuals did, uh, Ed Schnettler was the main driving source, uh, source behind this. And he called his dog Saturday night was his, so Saturday night kennels. Uh, he had a number of field champions. But what what they did was they took the the Irish setter breed and they bred it back with the English setter, which had never become terribly popular with with pets and and companion dogs. So they had a lot of hunting instincts yet. So that was uh, when they read when they bred them back and forth, the reds to the white dogs, the the English setters. They got registered with uh, a breed registry called the, uh, the American Field, the American Stud Dog Book, which is out of Chicago. So they were not able to be registered with the American Kennel Club. So the dogs, the red setter is the breed that we call it nowadays, is more of not that real deep red mahogany color anymore. It's more of a burnt orange, might have some white on it. It's going to be a smaller rangier dog, but it's going to be uh, bred for, for upland hunting. And that's what we see now. There's really become two distinct uh, sectors in the breed. The, the old Irish setter, the big bench, you know, uh, dark mahogany color dog and these red setters. But Ed Schnettler was instrumental in that. And uh, that was the first individual I ever met that had any trained dogs. And Ed was from St. Cloud area, and he was a retired Air Force colonel. And he was quite an individual. I, I, that was really my first experience uh, with any kind of trained dogs. Uh, and now they run, uh, I think the national championship is called the Ed Schnettler Memorial Trophy for the Red Setters. So um, so I, I was exposed to a lot of different dogs when I was uh, you know, just out of school and kind of thinking about what I was going to do, Nick. But at the end of the day, Ed said something to me. He said, Pete, if you're going to get into training dogs, you might as well become a retriever trainer. There's just more retrievers to train in this world <laughs> than there are all these darn pointing dogs. And and that is the direction. But I do love any dog that works good, Nick. Yeah, that's a great story and some great insight on the Irish setter and the red setter. And, uh, you know, knowing where you're at, knowing what kind of area that is, I think uh, becoming a retriever trainer was a, was a smart idea because I think uh, a good lab will do you a lot of good down in that area. Uh, they, they do. And, and like I said earlier, there's just so many of them uh, to be trained. And, and the other thing is, is Minnesota and Wisconsin, historically, Nick, has been a retriever uh, breeding and training mecca. I sure. mean, there's a lot of retriever trainers up in, in this uh, neck of the woods and always have been, even dating back into the 50s. You know, the guy I worked for was quite well known. Uh, Lorne trained dogs for John Olin and John Olin was uh, Olin Winchester. And um um, I worked for burgers over at Deltone Kennels for a short period of time, and, and they trained dogs, uh, national champions. Um, Cork of Oakwood Lane, one of the premier uh, retrievers in the, you know, going back through our uh, pedigrees, was trained by uh, Tony Berger, and I worked there for a short stint. So this always has been a retriever mecca, the, you know, the, the Minnesota and Wisconsin area. But uh, again, I, I, any dog that works good, I like, and I, I, I still love hunting behind a pointy dog, and I've always had at least one German shorthair pointer in my group, and I still have one right now. So, 
Awesome. Yeah. I, we love bird dogs on the Project Upland podcast. And so mm-hmm. that's uh, that's something we all have in common. That's for sure. So let's kind of transition, Pete, into let's go with remote training callers, because I think that's the technically correct term. I know they've, yeah. they've been called yeah. shock callers and e-callers and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. But with that in mind, why don't you give us you know, I don't mean to date you, especially with your comments about senior earlier, but, uh, you know, walk us through a little bit and just kind of compare and contrast where we are today in 2019 with remote yeah. training callers versus when they first hit the market. Yeah. When, it, when you know, they when they first came on the market, most of them were one level of stimulation and that was high. There was no way to vary the amount of stimulation uh, out of the unit. And so, and, and quite honestly, that's where they, in my opinion, they got kind of a bad rap when they first came out because- yeah. I mean, you, you had, I mean, these dogs just took a, an extreme amount of stimulation from these units because you couldn't adjust it. Consequently, as uh, e-collars, remote training collars developed over the years, the technology came about that we had uh, the ability to change the amount of stimulation implemented to the dog, depending on the situation and depending on the dog's temperament. You know, you can have a dog that might have a high threshold for stimulation. He's going to have to train on a high level. You have dogs that have a, a low threshold for it. And it's static electricity is, is really the way these units operate. And so it's uh, most of them run on about a seven volt battery, but then the amperage is very low. And uh, one of the things that I will tell people all the time when I have people call up and say, hey, this unit burnt my dog. I said, it doesn't have enough energy to burn your dog. Believe me, it's static electricity. is no different than shuffling your feet across the dry carpet. And then you go ground yourself on a doorknob. That's static electricity. We just have the ability to change the amount of that and vary it on the handheld transmitter now. So that's probably one of the biggest uh, advancements, Nick, in these units and in my lifetime is that ability to dial in uh, the amount of stimulation to the dog, depending on the situation, right at my handheld. It was not that way early on. And they had great big long antennas on them. You know, you'd go out and see some of us training back in the 70s and 80s, and it looked like a darn CBers convention. You know, they had these long whip antennas and extendable (laughs) antennas on them. And that's not the case nowadays. You know, most of the transmitters, are pocket size and they got a little two or three inch uh, antenna on them. And, and so things have really evolved uh, like so many things in our society. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so let's, let's dive in there. You, you talked a little bit about kind of one of my first questions was how do they work? And so you mentioned, you know, because I want to remove some of the uncertainty here and you mentioned static electricity, you kind of covered how, how do they work? So mm-hmm. we've got a good understanding of, of how, how they work. How do we use them? And when we were talking last week, you had a you had a really neat way of putting it in the sense that it was come to me, go stationary, or go away from me. So talk a little yeah. bit how we use the e, the e collars to train our dogs. Sure, uh, you know, unfortunately, many people, uh, professionals and e- and amateurs, don't have a really good understanding of all the different things that the, the remote training collar can do for you. Many times. Uh, people get, purchase a remote training collar, whether it be for a pet or let's say hunting dog training, uh, because the dog doesn't come when it's called. And, you know, a dog that doesn't come when it's called is, is just a matter of time for that dog's in trouble. And so most people just, you know, you've got your dog out pheasant hunting and he keeps blowing pheasants out the end of the field and you've got no way to correct him and you got no way to stop him. <laughs> and then what happens is, is, is one day the guy says, you know what, I'm going to go get one of those shocker deals and we're going to we're going to teach him. And, and they go strap it on them. They don't do any basic training with them. Don't associate the dog to the stimulation. And they let the dog just take off and go chasing birds. And, and uh, this today is the day we're going to level the training field. 
and we ramp it up and, and put a bunch of stimulation to him and the dog yelps and comes running back to us or he yelps and goes running the other direction because it's a form of avoidance training. And so maybe he decides the way to avoid it is to out, try and outrun this stimulation. And now you've got a unit uh, dog in a unit going down the trail and gone. And so there's a certain amount of training that should be done with the remote training collar before you ever put it on the dog and take them out in the field. And so uh, a three-step process uh, that I always tell people, and it's not something unique to, to something that I've developed, Nick. I've gone to a lot of training seminars. I know a lot of professional trainers. Um, the, the vast majority of the good, really good trainers are going to use the unit to reinforce three different commands. Come to me, which I just explained, go stationary to a sit or a woe standing stay position, or go away from me, such as into a kennel, a crate, a boat. So three-step process, come to me, go stationary, go away from me. Once the dog knows those commands, then we can use light stimulation with the e-collar to reinforce those commands. And normally we do it when the dog's still on a rope yet. And a lot of times when I'll explain this to somebody that calls in and says, geez, I'm having trouble getting my dog trained with this e-collar. And I start questioning them on it. And I start telling them the things that I'm telling you right now. So I said, you know, when I, when I, once I've got that dog, so he understands the, the commands, first, he's got to know the commands before I can reinforce them. And it's negative reinforcement. And then once the dog complies with it, the stimulation stops, or once he commits to the command, then we use positive reinforcement. And then it's just a lot of repetition. But a lot of times I'll tell people they've tried to get rid of the rope. They still got the e-collar on the dog, but they've unsnapped the rope. And now the, the dog doesn't truly know the command yet. And I'll say to them, well, you got to put the rope on him. And they say, no, 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 wait a minute, Pete. You don't understand. I want to get the dog off the rope. And I'll say, you know what? The rope is my safety net. That's like a steering wheel on the car. I want to be able to guide him, show him what I want. Eventually, my goal is to get him off the rope and just have the e-collar on him. But so many people, they think it's a race and they, they think that the faster I get that rope off them, uh, the faster I'm going to have uh, get the dog to the point where I have control over them. And you know, many times when I'm doing a seminar or talking to somebody about remote training collars, Nick, I'll say the most important piece of equipment that I have with my remote training collar is a piece of wash line rope. Yeah. That's my steering wheel. That's how I guide the dog. Dogs don't know where that static electricity is coming from. You have to show them what you want get them to understand, get them to uh, learn how they can avoid that uncomfortable feeling of the static and then comply with the command. And then the positive reinforcement comes afterwards. <laughs> yeah. Pretty simple, really. But yeah, a lot, of, a lot of times people try to take shortcuts. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I do think that is one of the things that gets people in trouble, myself included. It's that, yeah, we have the end result in mind. And of course, like anything else, most of us want to get there as fast as possible. And yeah. Yep. Without 30 years of experience and a lot of a lot of other stuff, you know, sometimes we just we shoot ourselves in the foot by taking shortcuts and maybe it's not even completely intentional. Maybe it's just by mistake, but it's not having the knowledge that a guy like yourself has. Could we could we take a minute or two and just go through a sort of a standard progression? I know every dog's an individual and it's not always going to work out the same way, but how you would let's just do recall because no matter what kind of dog you have, you know, everybody needs recall. How would you begin with the recall command, you know, starting from just the check cord or the rope mm -hmm. and then actually overlaying that with the e the e collar? Like how would how would a progression what would it look like? Sure. Well well once we had that dog on the on the long rope or check cord, and typically I would have him on a, a it's it's a bad term. It's called a choke chain or a pinch collar. Sure. But really the choke chain is not used to choke the dog. Again, it's just a that's negative reinforcement as well. So I'd have him on a long, let's just say a 20, 30 foot uh, piece of rope on, on a, on his uh, collar strap. No, and I don't even have an e-collar on him at this point. Mm -hmm. 
And I would just start teaching him. I give him the here command and a little tug with that rope. And I don't, when I give him the command, I'm giving him the negative reinforcement right as I give it. I'm not going to wait and say, here is the command that I use for recall, Nick. Mm -hmm. And I don't care what command you use as long as you use it the same time, the same way. Uh, But I don't want to see people saying, come one time, the dog's name the next and here. Here means for me, when I train a dog, here means right over here to me. So when I call that dog to here, and let's say it's a puppy or a young dog, typically what I do, Nick, is when I call here, I'm going to give that that uh, that check cord a little jerk on that chain to negative reinforce the dog to come at me. Now, if he if he box at it, I still got the rope uh, in my hand. I'm going to reel him in like a fish on a line, giving him little jerks. And when he gets to me, what do you think I'm going to do, Nick? Praise him. Praise him. Positive reinforcement. And I don't I use treat training. I don't have a problem with that. I use positive reinforcement for me because I always got my hands and voice with me. Right. Yeah. And so that's how I start this dog. I don't I don't call him to here and say, well, let's see what he does here, 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 boy, here, here. It's here. Quick, quick jerk. Another here. Quick jerk. Get him to come to me. So when he gets to a point when he's out running around dragging that rope around and I call him to here and he swings and turns, I know that he's starting to understand what here means. Okay. now I can start taking the remote training collar, as you said earlier, and overlaying that reinforcement of the of the here command. And so that little jerk that I gave the dog with that uh, check cord and, and collar, Nick, now I'm going to replace that with a light stimulation with the with the remote training collar. I keep it set very light. I don't want to see the dog vocalize. If he does vocalize, well, maybe got a little little too high for him. Uh, then there, I always tell people, you know, there's a reason it's got that little knob on top. And I'm going to be changing that stimulation level all the while I'm training him. Because so many different things can, uh, factors can come into play that, you know, I may have him set at level 15 and I get a nice reaction, a head bob or an eye blink, and he's coming to it when I use the stimulation. And the next time around, I'll have people say, well, the unit must not be working. He ignored it. And I said, put it on your hand and tell me if it's working. Tell us, it's turned up to level 30. It's static electricity. Well, it's working. Well, why didn't the dog acknowledge it? You never know. An old timer told me this, Chad James, who knows more about remote training callers than any man that I've ever met. We never know how that dog's going to react each time we turn press that button. And so you could have, why did the dog at level 30 didn't even acknowledge it, whereas uh, uh, 30 seconds earlier at level 15, he jumped up in the air. There's many different factors outside environments, such as maybe the dog was distracted by something. Maybe it's the position of the remote training collar on the dog's neck. We didn't have a, didn't, didn't have as good a contact. So there's so many different factors come into play. I just watch the dog and I tap that button. And then again, I still use, I still got that rope on him here, tap, tap. And if he comes, I'm reeling him in like a fish on a line. And then when he gets to me, positive reinforcement. So, and then I never try and mix commands. When I start out doing this with a dog, I'm not going to try and mix my recall command and then start teaching the dog, let's say the woe or the sit command with a tap and then the go away. We're going to confuse the hell out of this dog if we start doing that. Let's get one command established and such as the recall command. And then once he's good at that, then we can start reinforcing the, the sit command or the stationary command. Sure. All right. Since that was so good, Pete, let's have, let's talk about the, the sit or the woe command. I just want, I'm just curious on how you would start initiate and see that training through as well. Uh, really the, the same scenario, Nick, I first, I got to teach that dog how to sit and I'm just going to use a retriever, um, as an example, if I call, if I tell that dog to sit normally, he's going to be right aside of me. And when I give him that little bit of a lift or jerk upwards with the head, and I guide his uh, butt down with my hand, head comes up, butt goes down. Okay. So sit, and then I, I do that same jerk. Again, I'm not going to say sit, 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 please sit. I'm saying sit, 
little jerk, butt goes down. And then again, once he complies, Nick, what am I going to do? Praise the heck out of him. Positive reinforcement. So, and then it's just repetition over and over and over. If I'm doing that uh, uh, with a, like I said, a, a pointing dog, Personally, I don't teach the sit early on to my pointing dogs. Sure. Yep. I, I teach them the, the, the standing stay command. If you want to use whoa, that's fine. You can use stay. Uh, I, I personally use weight is what I use with my dogs uh, because I like to use the command. If they're getting into something I don't like, I like to use no. And that sometimes can be really confusing for the dog that knows whoa and no. It's oh, sure. Yeah. To understand. Yep. So my dogs have always used the, the standing stay position for my German short hair pointer. Trip is his name is weight. And so, um, I would do the same thing. I would, uh, put him in the standing state position, command him to wait. I give him a little jer- jerk upwards. If he starts to go downwards, Nick, I reach underneath and pull him back up because mm-hmm. I want him to stay in the standing state position when I give him the weight command. And then again, either regardless of if I'm doing this with a sit uh, position with a, with a, a retriever or a standing state position with a pointer, eventually when they know that command, Nick, they're on the rope yet light stimulation uh, to reinforce that command. And there are some pointing dog people like to put the training collar underneath the belly on the dog and stimulate them, uh, you know, light stimulation. Personally, um, I- I've always been training collar around the neck and just use light stimulation. So that's how I introduce it for the for the standing stay or the sit position is really the same same way that I would have on the uh, on the recall. But now this time around on on the uh, on, on the standing stay or the sit position, that dog's right next to me. I'm not trying to stop him or make him stay out at 10 feet to start with. And, got it. You know, first, he's got to learn that command right by me. Then I can get the dog, the retriever, to sit at 10 feet. Then I can get him to sit at 110 feet. Then I can get him to sit at 100 yards. Same way with the pointer. First, he's got to learn that standing stay position in close. You know, it's building blocks, Nick. And then you get him doing it close in. Then you get him doing it 10 feet away, then 20 feet away, and you just keep building on it. Yeah. Step by step, it's all part of the progression. <laughs> It is. It's, I've said that a million times with people is that, you know, it's long-term behavior management is what we're doing here with a dog. I don't care what breed it is. I don't care if it's a pet dog. We use the remote training collar. I trained a heck of a lot of uh, pet dogs late in my career also. You know, if it basically had a head in the tail and and, and uh, needed some training, I'd, I'd train it. I mean, so I my claim to fame was retrievers, but I trained some of almost every breed. The only thing I never really trained was any kind of uh, bite dogs or anything like that, you, you know, uh, canine dogs. Although I did some basic obedience type stuff and helped some canine guys uh, that would come out here and do scent dog det- detection. So uh, really the remote training collar work that we call our e-collar conditioning is what most of us call it in the business. That program that I use, Nick, uh, I'd modify it depending on the, on the dog a little bit, uh, depending on their temperament. But quite honestly, Nick, I use the same recipe for a pointing dog, a retriever, or a pet dog for e-collar conditioning. Come to me, go stationary, go away from me. Same. Same thing. I just take it different directions depending on what the dog was going to do as I use it more advanced training. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. Keep your, keep your basics and your fundamentals simple and then tailor it to the individual dog. Yep. Because everybody would have different aspirations. You know, the average pet, pet dog person, they just wanted a dog that uh, would come uh, out of the backyard when it's called, wouldn't jump up on the people at the door, you know, try and steal food off the table, you know, those type of things. And they were very happy. Uh, Consequently, you t- take an individual that spent six, eight months, ten months of training in a in a dog that he wanted to run competitions with, that needed a uh, an advanced form of training because of the distances and the complication of what they require dogs in competitions, hunt tests, and field trials nowadays. I mean, that's just 
uh, that's just taking it to the nth degree. But I started all of them the same way. It's just that the pet dog owner was just very happy and he didn't need his dog to go out, run out 150 yards and find a dead duck laying somewhere. You know what I mean? Yeah. He just didn't want the dog jumping on somebody when they came in the front door. It was all kind of the same basics that we would use. Yeah. The point that you made earlier about always adjusting the stimulation and paying attention to the dog. I mean, that's probably can't be said enough. I've seen it with my dog and I'm, I'm sure that others have as well. You're, the dog definitely reacts to the same stimulation level differently given the environmental variables. I mean, it's completely, you can get completely different reactions if, you know, if there's nothing going on, a four yeah. might, might make him jump, like you said, but then maybe he's chasing a rabbit or a squirrel and he doesn't, yes. he could care less about a four, you know, that kind of stuff is exactly. really important. Yep. You know, I always would tell people, I said, think about this. Think about if you got children and you're trying to get your son to take the, the garbage out and he's sitting there watching the TV. Well, that's, that can be a heck of a distraction for most young people. And I'd say, you know, let's take, you ask him to take the garbage out, take the garbage out, take the garbage out. And he just ignores you. <laughs> but if we walk over and turn the TV off, get a, take the distraction out of the environment. Now say, go take the, take the garbage out. No, he didn't put the training collars on him, although I was tempted at times. <laughs> now, once you take the distraction out of the equation, now you've got the, the animal's attention again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Good, good point. Uh, all right. So I got a selfish question for you. I'm, I'm going to jokingly say that I'm asking for a friend, but I'm really asking for myself. Uh, let's say this is just kind of a random question, but since you've got this experience in training dogs, what's your take on curbing barking? Is there, is there anything that can be done other than a bark collar? You know, that's, that's a great question. And we run into this uh, a fair amount and that the, uh, you know, the no bark collars are very popular and it just seems uh, so many dogs that are, we run into that people contact us that need a, a no bark collar. I sometimes, I try and diagnose it uh, uh, a, a little bit differently. And to me, <laughs> Nick, and I think you can relate to this, is the dog that's tired out is a happy dog. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. You got to realize, and I'm not saying this about your dog, but maybe it is true. You tell me. But so many of these dogs nowadays are living in suburbia. The owners are both working. The dog's cooped up in a kennel or even sometimes, Nick, if you can believe this, in a crate all day long. And, um, and you know, for eight, ten hours at a crack. And this is an animal that needs exercise. And so the, the dog is the dog is bored. The dog has not been played out during the day. He doesn't have probably have any active training program, not getting the amount of exercise uh, that, that the animal really needs. So. When I, a lot of times when I start diagnosing problems over the phone uh, in my, even when I was in the business and even now when people contact dogs and say, do you have somebody on staff that can answer some training questions? Those come to me. And one of the first things I say to them is, you know, let's get that dog a bunch of exercise. And and I wouldn't doubt that you probably need some here as well is what I normally tell the people. Sure. And, and if you can get them out and let them run, Nick, if you've got a big runner, you what kind of, what breed do you have, Nick? It's an English setter. Sure. And I'll be willing to bet that dog, uh, uh, what's the size of it? Is it full grown, Nick? He, yeah, he's 50 pounds. He, he'll be five in June. Yeah. And if I was to say he's probably what I, I kind of, uh, I'm going to guess that he might be what we always refer to as a, a horseback field trial bred setter. Yeah. He's, he came from? He, yeah. He's of, he's of kind of those lines. Yep. Yeah. And so those dogs are born to, to, to run big. They, they have a lot of energy. Uh, my short hairs, Nick, and I love those dogs because those dogs, I, I want a dog that will, with that kind of drive and, and horsepower to them. Um, so my, all my German short hairs that I've owned over the years have all come from, if you look at their pedigrees, they're all out of FCs, field champions. And that means these dogs were horseback field trial bred dogs. 
and they and I I break them back for my use as a gun dog because I don't need a dog that's out uh, a quarter mile away hunting. Not the way I hunt, but I want that dog that's got that get up and go and that drive. And so my my in your situation, you've got a dog that's got a lot of energy. And so the more uh, the more exercise you can get that dog in a, in any given day, Nick, the better off he's going to be. <laughs> Excuse me, but the the if if those things don't work and he's just what we call a chronic barker, you don't have many other options other than a no bark collar. Gotcha. You, you know, you can go out there and if you want to go out there and thrash him for barking at the point where you get out there, all you're going to do, Nick, is just make the dog afraid of you. That's mm-hmm. not going to do any good. Yeah. You know what I mean? You need to correct the problem. You know, timing and dog training is really critical. And go back to the remote training caller. Why have these things gotten to be so damn popular from a professional standpoint? When I'm trying to correct the dog or reinforce a command that's 100 yards or 200 yards or 300 yards away and he does something I don't want him to do. Nick, by the time I'd get out there, that dog has forgot what what I the reason I would be there. And if you're going to discipline the dog out at that distance after that amount of time, by the time you'd get there to reinforce the command, you're just wasting your time. Yeah, it is. The dogs don't have dogs don't learn on that capacity, in my opinion. It, it, your your reinforcement of a command or a correction, whatever way you want to call it, has to be instantaneous. And so, with a no bark collar, he barks, he gets immediate. It's got a sensor in it. He gets immediate stimulation you can vary the amount of stimulation and and that's that's the only way you're going to probably curb it and then a lot of times people say to me well will my dog have to wear this all the time and i say to depends on the dog's trainability level you know some dogs uh can can learn a lesson and learn it for life other dogs that are a chronic barker and doesn't have great trainability level and that barking's ingrained in them yeah he may have to wear that collar most of his life yeah yeah that's that's good stuff pete and to your point about the exercise, I mean, I think that goes a long ways with a lot of dogs. I mean, my dog, I, in fairness, I think he, he has the sort of the prototypical on-off switch. I mean, he's a house dog. He's in here with me all day. As long as we get out for some kind of a run, and some, yep. day, some days I trick him. Yesterday, I took him out with the little guy, and we walked around the block on a, you know, with pushing the stroller, and he was walking alongside yep. us. So he didn't get his full exercise, but he still came in afterwards and was was really good. I think his barking to add a little color to the situation. It's it's really that situational stuff. You know, somebody comes at the door. God forbid they ring yep. the doorbell. Uh, yep. That stuff where it, I think it's kind of on me. I'd have to set up more situations where. We did some yep. some instantaneous corrections and have right. know, my wife come to the door or whatever, and I just haven't done yes. that. So yeah, and 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 the thing of it is, Nick, is if you've got a training collar and you're in control of the environment, you don't necessarily need a bark collar. Right. You know, the no bark collar is for the person that has a chronic barker when nobody's around. Yeah. And the, and you got to have some way to curtail it. And now the the police are tapping on your door and say, hey, you know, your neighbors are complaining about your dog barking when you're at work. That's the person that's going to almost have to go to the to the no bark collar. And a lot of times people will call doctor and say, geez, I don't want to shock my dog for doing this. And a lot of times I'll just, you know, sometimes just being really blunt, I'll say, so you, so the police have been to you, they've contacted you about your dog barking when you're not home and you don't, you looking into a, a, a no bark collar, but you don't know if you want to go that route. So my question to you would be, what are your other options? Yeah. Going to get rid of the dog? I mean, that's that's one option. Yeah. Well, no, I don't want to do that. And I said, well, so now we're we're kind of <laughs> it's become very obvious what we got to do here. Yeah. So uh, the no bark, your training collar. If the dog's barking at home, Nick can be used to reinforce uh, for no for barking as well. You you just got to be the one standing there punching the button. Exactly. Correct? Yep. Yep. And then you you touched on this as well. And sometimes uh, this is the type of things that just make me sit and scratch my head, I'll say, well, make that comment to somebody and to say, you know, you can set the dog up, 
uh, well, I can't, I don't have all day to wait around for somebody to come ring my doorbell. Not stadium. Well, yeah. You must have somebody that at every disposed time can come ring your doorbell for you. Yeah. So, um, you know, sometimes an old timer told me this, Lorne Martin's years back, you know, the first thing you got to be when it comes to training a dog is smarter than the dog. So, yeah. Yeah. um, so, but you could use your, your remote training collar for reinforcing the, the, you know, the, the, the barking. Yeah. You just got to be there to push the button. Yep. Yeah. I, I've for a long time said that any fault in my dog is, is basically, you know, I put it into him because I, overall, he's a really good dog and he's got, he's yep. got great genetics and he's very biddable, very easy to train. Yep. Almost. I've said this before. He's almost so easy to train. I feel like it lets me be lazy and that's kind of, yeah. that's sort of the situations that we've run into. But on those bark collars, you know, I've looked into him enough, you know, for people that are curious about them and worried about them. I mean, they have, they, it's just like you said, with the advancements in technology, they've got a lot of features built in to where they can escalate. And then they can, if it's, if it's going off too much, they'll shut down for a certain amount of time just to avoid that, you know, so you don't have to feel scared to leave your dog at home with that on. Right. Yeah. I'll, I'll just give an example on our most popular no bark collar of dog trust, which is our YS 600. Yep. That unit's got a couple of features in it, but, uh, They've got a really unique feature in, in this, and a lot of the, our competitors have the same thing. They have an accelerometer, in the, and that's what deciphers if the dog's barking. Mm-hmm. It registers the, the vibration of the dog's vocal cords is what it does. And so you, you set the unit. Normally, I tell people set it at a low setting. We can always work our way up. But if you're not around, how do, how do I know if, the, if it's really working? On this particular unit, it has some LED lights on the front of it. When you turn that unit off, it's going to blink in different scenarios, and it's going to tell you if that has set off during the day. And if it has set off during the day, uh, then it, we probably need to bump up the stimulation level on it. The other thing, you've got to be careful with any training collar, and especially a no-bark collar that you got to have on the dog's neck for a long period of time, is something skin irritation that we refer to as pressure necrosis, which can look like a burn, but again, these units can't burn dogs. But pressure necrosis sores is equivalent of a bed sore. And what it does is that those contact points laying in the same spot on the tissue collapse the, uh, the blood vessels underneath. And once they collapse it underneath, they're starved for blood and they start to die off. And so you'll get a couple little holes in the dog's neck where your contact points lay. And, and I've had veterinarians that say, well, I've, that's a classic burn mark. And I'll just say to them, you know what? It's not a burn because this, you know what? Take my word for it. It just does not have produce enough energy, but pressure necrosis sores are very real, especially with a no bark collar. So you got to rotate it into different locations uh, and you got to take it off at times also. I mean, there's going to have to be a time where this, that you can't, dog can't wear something forever. And then the other thing you run into at times is some dogs can be allergic to the stainless steel uh, that's, that's in the, uh, in the contact points. Oh, interesting. yeah. So you always, anytime you hang something around your dog's neck, you got to be careful, but especially the no bark collars, because they do got to wear them. You got a chronic barker neck. You got to wear it long-term. Yeah. All right, Pete. So we've talked a little bit about possibly common mistakes that people could make with the remote training collar. And another one of the, the funny sayings that I wrote down from when we were chatting last week is one thing we don't want to do is walk into this with the expectation that we're going to burn and learn. That's, that's not yeah. what we want to do. And yeah. we can reiterate these callers can't burn. You've said that enough number of times, but yeah. talk about some of the common mistakes, you know, beginners or amateurs like myself might make with a e-caller. Yeah. And that, that burn and learn is just kind of an old saying from that most trainers have used over the years when they ran into somebody that just 
didn't do all the foundation work and yeah. obedience train the dog and use it for reinforcing the commands like I explained earlier. And you just throw it on the dog and just burn and learn. And hopefully the, uh, he's going to learn something. It may not be the right things, but yeah. uh, you know that burn and learn business comes about by what I, I kind of gave you the scenario earlier is that you know, you've hunted enough pheasants over the years. The pheasant loves to run. And I don't care if it's a wild bird or a game farm bird. They, they just soon try and outrun the hunter, especially a late season burn bird. And so the dog, the dog learns how to trail the bird. He learns that, you know, the reward is I track that bird and hopefully uh, I put him up and, uh, and the hunter shoots him and I get to retrieve him. Well, sometimes that, that uh, tracking that bird and chasing it overrides the, the hunter's ability to control him. And out the end of the uh, end of the field goes the bird and the dog and the hunter's hundred. 200 yards back and never gets a shot at it so that's the individual that says you know what today i'm going down to the local uh sporting goods store of you know cabela's bass pro whatever and i'm buying one of these things and that's enough of that and they go on they and they literally nick they take it home unbox it uh never do anything they just put it on the dog and they say well um you know i'm i don't need to read these instructions i'm just going to go out and and i'm today's the day i'm leveling the playing field no more chasing birds out the end of the field and they apply the stimulation to the dog. The dog has no idea how to get out of it. Never felt it before. You might get lucky, Nick, and about 50% of the time, he might come all the way back to you. He may never go out in front of you the rest of the day. He might walk behind you because it was so traumatic for him. Or he may try and outrun it. And he's learned to outrun the training collar. Then you're going to have to get somebody that's in the business to kind of reverse that whole process. So that's where the you know, I come up with the burn and learn. And, I mean, it's a derogatory comment. But the bottom line is, is that's not how we, we want to train a dog. We want to lay all that foundation and that building block process so that when the dog does start feeling that, that static electricity, that it's in a controlled environment, he knows how to get out of it rather than just taking it on him and, and going out in the field with it. That's, uh, I said this a million times to people when I would be explaining, they go, I took it, went and bought one and I put it on him and, and uh, it just didn't work out, you know, very well. I took it back and I uh, got my money back and I said, really? So you just threw it on the dog and, and started punching, punching buttons. Yeah, well, that's all it is. And I said, I'd say to him, do you have children? Yeah, I've got children. Well, think about this. Your kids play any, any sports? Well, yeah, he plays little Joey plays basketball. Did you take little Joey out and throw him into his very first basketball game without him ever practicing? Right. So, I mean, this is what we got to do with the dog. We got to train him. We got to practice with it before we ever put him on the playing field. Yeah. I, I mean, we could, we could talk about that all day. And really the, you know, the important thing is the risk of, confusing your dog and doing irreparable damage is just too great to be mess- mm-hmm. messing around with something like this. So that's where you really want to do the right intro and build that foundation. Nick in the, in the right hands, uh, with somebody that has trained literally thousands of dogs with a remote training collar. Uh, it's, it's darn near like a magic wand if it's done right. right. I mean, I can't ever imagine uh, hunting without one nowadays. I mean, it just makes the hunt so much more pleasurable. Not all this whistling and beeping and yelling, uh, my dog's a little too far out. I beat him a couple times with a whistle. If he doesn't respond, tap, tap with the training collar. He turns, comes back in. He knows because they, they, they're, they're dogs. You know, they're, they're, there's never been a perfect one yet. They're all going to push that envelope of maybe being too far out uh, of gun range or not being steady on, a, on some ducks that come into the, into the decoys. You know, that's how we, we need something to reinforce these uh, commands. And the training collar just does it so effectively. Uh, it's just a, a great tool. Yeah. All right, Pete. Well, let's do a little bit of a transition here and start talk. Let's talk about a few of the Dogtra <laughs> offerings that are right in the wheelhouse of Upland hunters. And we're going to get to GPS because that's 
you know, in this whole world of e-collars, GPS has firmly planted itself right in the middle of it. Uh, but I want to talk about another dog trip product and that would be the, the T and B collar, which is the tracking or which is the training and beeper collar. And the one thing yes. that I've always thought was really cool about the doctor collar is that the training stimulation unit and the beeper are all built into the same housing. So you got a collar with just one little casing on it. And I thought that was cool, but yes. um, tell us a little bit about that collar. Well, the, the T and B unit has been around for, for quite a few years. We, it was called a 2,500 T and B. Now we just updated it here this past year to a 2,700 T and B, basically the same unit with just a couple upgrades. It now has a pager vibration function in it. And, uh, that has that accelerometer in it also, for uh, activating when you put put it into what's called the run point mode, so it'll beep uh, every every so many seconds when the dog's pointing, every so many seconds when the dog is out searching for a bird. Uh, but those units have been around and got to be very popular. Our our unit does have the the uh, speaker, the beeper speaker built into the receiver box, which has been very popular. Yeah. Uh, there's no speaker horn up on top of your dog's head with a separate battery pack. A lot of those uh, tend to flip flop because you got the weight of the battery and the beeper horn, and then yep. pretty soon you're uh, stimulation, your receiver box is up on top of the dog's uh, head and the beepers down below. Ours is built all into one. Normally the dog wears it off to one side of his windpipe or the other, just depending on, you know, where you want to fasten it. So it's going to be, if you looked on the face of a clock, uh, it's going to be probably in the four to five o'clock range or over on the seven to eight o'clock range uh, is where we put it. So the beeper, the, the, the horn out of the beep out of the horn goes down, hits the ground and comes up into the into the air and, and then the, the hunter it's for locating your dog where he's at out in front of you and and i've i'm a firm believer anytime I'm, I'm out upland hunting that's the unit that's on my dog even if i'm working one of my retrievers uh because i want to be able to tap the locate mode to see where that dog is at and i've got some pretty thick uh native prairie grasses out here big blue stem and and uh switch grass and that darn dog could be uh nick he could be 10 yards in front of me and i wouldn't know he's there it's so thick and so the beeper unit does give me, it's got the training collar function in it also, you know, the static electricity, but it also has the, this, this beeper function in it, which is really valuable for, for tapping that every so often to see where the dog's at. He's over to my left or my right or, or right in front of me because they're very easy to get lost in that cover. Yeah. Yeah. The locate feature and the ability to adjust the collar from the transmitter, that all, all that stuff becomes really, really handy <laughs> when you're in the field. Yes. You know, you brought up, um, you brought up an inter- interesting question. We didn't talk about this and I, I think I'd love to get your opinion on it. Fitting the e-collar on the dog, you mentioned the T and B specifically being to the side, one side of the windpipe. I, I always had this thing where I felt like maybe the first time I had a collar, it was, you know, you want it dead center, right, right in the middle of the dog's neck. But I just know from experience, my dog, and I feel like I've seen different dogs. Like my dog has, he doesn't have like as structured of a neck as say like a muscular GSP or something where you can mm-hmm. really get it way up high. But I guess just in general, talk about how do we get the proper fit for that e-collar on the dog? Good. Um, typically that any unit that I'm using, whether I'm training or whether I'm hunting Nick is going to be off in those positions that I just described to you. Okay. So I don't ever put it over the windpipe. The windpipe on most dogs is kind of egg shaped. You don't get good contact. You've got to make both those contacts that protrude out of the receiver box. Both those got to touch. There's a positive and a negative to a training collar. If you ever put put your hand on it and you're sensitive enough to it, you can kind of feel that the stimulation really only is kind of, you can feel it more out of one uh, contact than the other. So both those contacts got to be touching. If you're only, if only one of them are touching the dog's skin, it, it does not complete the circuit, so to speak. Yep. So 
it's important that you get it in a in a nice flat location and so that's the reason i avoid and most trainers avoid the the windpipe and so off to that off to the side if the dog was facing looking at me as i go to put that unit on him uh i'm either putting it on in that uh area of let's say four to uh five o'clock on a on a face of a dial of a of a clock or i'm going to be over in the seven eight o'clock position how tight am i going to put it on if I put it on him, Nick, and I'm hunted for a while, and all once I look and it's dangling around his neck, guess what? I had it on too loose. Yep. I'm calling the dog over to me. I'm cinching it up, putting it off the side, and I'm probably going one more, uh, snug it down one more uh, slot on it. So I like to have the training collar off to one side. Here's the other thing. When you uh, train a dog extensively or hunt a dog extensively, you're going to get some abrasion, some wear and tear where those contact points are moving up and down on that dog's neck. And if I've got it off to one side or the other, and it starts getting some skin irritation, then guess what? I can go to the opposite side the next sure. day with the training collar and, and give that that uh, tissue that's underneath there that might have some scarring, uh, you know, from the abrasion of it rubbing up and down. Uh, then I can go to the opposite side. If, I, if I'm always putting it over the windpipe and I start getting some irritation there, then now I got to go to the side. But the, the sides are typically, if you ever watch a, a person that's trained dogs professionally, been in the business, most of us are going to put it off to the one side of the windpipe or the other. Sure. Yeah. That's good. Good advice there. And I think generally speaking, no, I think maybe I've seen a little bit of wear and tear on the dog's neck, but generally speaking, I would say very, very little. And I think they're, you know, for the most part, the, the good and the protection and the security that they provide the dog and handler is well worth uh, that. And usually if your dog's wearing it out in the field, he's not too concerned about it either. No, no. I mean, they, <laughs> They, most of them, if it's done right, when, um, for my own personal dogs, and I own three of them, uh, when I turn on that T&B unit, it get, puts out a metal, melody, you know, it yep. goes back to let me know that I've turned it on in the same way when you turn it off. Uh, when I'm getting my dogs ready and they hear that melody go on, they come running, they know it's hunting time. Oh, yeah. Because they know the next thing is that's going on one of them or two of them. I only hunt one or two at a time most of the time. And, and then they know the next thing that's coming out is they're going to see my gun and we're, we're off hunting. Yeah. And so they become conditioned, you know, it's kind of like Pavlov's dog. They'd hear the bell and, and start uh, running and being hungry. Uh, the same way with this unit, you, if it's done right, that dog sees or hears the training collar. He knows that it's fun time. Definitely. All right, Pete, GPS, we got to talk about it. We got Upland Bird Hunters listening. GPS is really important. And I know that I know from talking to you and from talking to other people that sell GPS collars, I know that Upland Hunters are not the number one buyer of GPS collars. That would go to the hound guys and the guys that are running a lot of dogs, but a lot of Upland Hunters do use GPS collars. So tell us about that from the dog trip perspective. Sure. I think it's been about two years or so ago, we came on the market with a with a GPS e-collar unit <clears throat> that we call Pathfinder. And uh, the uniqueness to the Pathfinder unit is you control the whole GPS, the tracking and the stimulation through your phone. And you download a free app that's called Pathfinder. And then there's uh, the collar that goes on the dog. And then you have another piece that stays with you that we refer to as the connecting device. And the connecting device takes all the information, the location, uh, the GPS coordinates, brings it back in through what we call MERS band, long range radio signal. And then from that connecting device, Nick, it brings it up to your phone via something called Bluetooth. And so we have the ability to track a dog, stimulate the dog through the app off of our off of our cell phone. And uh, it's, it was has uh, become a very popular unit. Uh, we do we use something called Google Maps, and all of us are probably very familiar with Google Maps. I, I assume you are. Yep. And 
all we do, Nick, is we overlay the coordinates of, of the dog and you and, and uh, the locations over Google Maps, and they're very realistic. You've got different map options, but if you use the standard uh, train Google Map, uh, you can see right where this dog is going. Ours will come. Uh, you can set it at uh, every two-second interval. So it's darn near like watching this dog uh, and yourself move through the field in real time. Two seconds interval updating is really fast. And so the the unit has been very popular because most of us have a phone already. So all you have to do is buy the collar and the connecting device. That unit comes in at about about $400, whereas most of our competitors, you got to buy the separate handheld yep. and then all the things I just described, and it's going to push it up into the seven. $800 range. I, uh, I don't pay that much attention to pricing on our competitors, but uh, ours is uh, substantially less expensive because you already have the phone. Yes, absolutely. And regarding my comment about the hound guys, do you see that from the doctor angle? I mean, are they buying a lot more callers than the upland hunters are? Um, on the GPS callers, Nick? Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's a huge market, bigger than uh, most of us would, would uh, living in the Midwest where you know, the, the hound uh, coon hunters are kind of dying out because of uh, just many different things, not because there's not as many coon around, but just the way the urban sprawl has gone. And, and it's it, uh, hound guys, that's a, that's a different uh, that's a different breed of cats, so to speak. And oh, yeah. uh, I'm amazed at how much money these individuals will will spend on their GPS units. And I've worked some. Uh, we talked about this last week when we chatted a little bit. I worked up. Uh, out in Indiana, this thing called Autumn Oaks. And uh, the days I was out there working it, it rained every day I was out there, Nick. And uh, I worked out of a a dealer's booth. I think we sold 50 some units and they had 10,000 people at this uh, event. And they said if it hadn't rained, they'd had 20,000. And uh, just the, the, the hound market is very, very strong. And they because of the distance that these dogs travel and and they're worth a lot of money and the guys and gals want to know where their dog's at. GPS is pretty much standard equipment on every hound that gets cut loose to whether you're a, uh, a coon hunter or a, a big cat hunter or, or you know, out, out in Arizona. Yep. That's pretty standard equipment to have a GPS hanging around your dog's neck nowadays to know where he's at. And is there a Pathfinder model? You mentioned that you can track and train using, aka using stimulation from the phone. Is there a Pathfinder model that is track only? I can't remember. Yes, there's... Uh, there's it's called trx and that means that that's the tracks only in other words you can't does not have the ability to uh stimulate and so the question might be is why do you need that um there's a lot of competitions uh let's say coon hunting competition night hunts um put on by the united kennel club and so when you run your dog in one of these events you want to be able to know where he's at but you cannot stimulate the dog right Uh, you cannot tone him so that TRX unit is just tracking only, and it only will show the coordinates uh, where the dog has been and gone and and headed that direction on your phone, and it can't does not have the ability to do to do anything else. No stimulation, no tone, um, and and that's why that particular unit was was uh, developed. Now there are are individuals. I ran into a, a individual here recently that hunts uh, hogs with his dogs down in in uh, Texas, and uh, he's got a group of hounds and. He said, I, I don't have the need to stimulate. And we never stimulate them anyway. So I don't need the e-collar function. So he bought 10 of these TRX units. And one connecting device and your phone would locate or track up to 21 units. So that, w- that was the direction he went. He said, I'm just never going to stimulate my dogs. Never have. I don't. Why? I don't know. Maybe they just want these dogs running big and chasing these feral hogs all over. He just wants to know where they're at. Yeah. All right, Pete. You want to do some listener questions? Sure. 
Okay, I've got a, a just a handful of questions here. We'll we'll kind of run through these as we finish up the podcast. But the first one is a question that I always have, and we got it from two other people, uh, a friend of mine, Ted from Wisconsin, and Matt from New York. And this is something that I'm really curious to get your opinion on, and it kind of relates to we just talked about the upland hunters being obviously an important part of the GPS market, but not necessarily dictating the future product development and design. But one thing that comes up often enough, and I'm always I'm always wondering about it, is who is going to be the first company to make a GPS collar with a built-in beeper unit? Because I've used the GPS collar enough to know that, especially in grouse cover, and even like you said, you know, in that thick grass where the locate function and the beeper function is still valid and still effective even though i have a gps collar strapped to my dog is that uh is that on the horizon or can you speak to that a little bit you know i i haven't seen anything in in any development uh or any discussions with the company nick yep. uh to build a, a beeper you know and, and i think one of the reasons they don't maybe don't think it's needed is because you know if you if you've got a fairly accurate gps you should be able to get fairly close to where the dog's at but you and i both know that there's times where your GPS will get you fairly close, but quite honestly, you're going to get some invalid uh, readings off your GPS because there's something called GPS sway. And GPS sway means that the signal could be moving around to different locations. And if you had a beeper on the the dog, you could beep it and say, oh, he's over here, not over here. So I I see the importance of it. Um, Anytime I I, uh, hear things like this, Nick, part of my job also is to, uh, I'll document this and I will send, uh, these ideas over to the R and D people and the owners of the company. And, and just so it may be something they are working on already. Most of the time I know of what they're working on, sure. but they will catalog it in. And, and if we get enough requests for it, then they'll start looking into it. Uh, so I'm not going to say that there isn't uh, I'm not aware of anything right now. Right. Um, but uh, it's not a bad idea because of the reasons that I just said, because sometimes your GPS is not always that accurate because of a lot of different uh, factors. And the other thing is, is if you're a grouse hunter and you're hunting early season grouse, you know what the canopy is like out in the grouse woods. Nick. Oh yeah. Well, guess what? I mean, that, <laughs> yep. you know, your GPS, if it can't, if it can't, if it can't get the signal, it's, then it's, then it's useless. So, uh, so then the beeper unit becomes even more valuable. Yeah. You brought up the important points and I think, you know, I love my GPS caller. I wouldn't, I wouldn't put my dog on the ground without it. It does a fantastic yep. job of getting me right in close to the dog. But as you well know, it's exactly what we talked about. If we're talking live hunting situation, my dog's on point. I'm within 20 yards. I know he's right there, but I can't see him. That's go Mm -hmm. time. You know, the bird is within range. You know, that's where, (laughs) that's where that, that tap a button locate feature, even if it's not a full blown beeper, but if it was just a locate feature, that would be really, really valuable, I think, to a lot of people. So if nothing else, I appreciate your insight on it. And you can just put my vote in for that and along with Ted and Mark and probably a bunch of other people listening to this. Yeah, yeah and, and quite honestly, to the individuals that uh, that uh, had those questions, one of the best things they can do is uh, I've got a, a fairly large uh, social media Facebook presence. They can find me on Facebook and friend me. And they can uh, relay that information to me over there. They can go on the doctor.com website and uh, send emails like that to the info at doctor. Just attention, Pete here. We listen to the podcasters, what we think. 
And I just take and, and forward those emails over to the R and D team. And, uh, you know, it's the old adage, Nick, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Yeah. And the more they hear of these things, um, the, the more they start to look at it and say, you know, maybe there is something here. So, yep. uh, I would encourage these individuals to find me on Facebook and send me a private message over or to go to the info at dog and just say, uh, attention Pete in the subject line and send me their thoughts. I'll, I'll part of my job is, is ferreting out all this information and, and getting it to the right people, Nick. Cool. Much appreciated. I'll make sure that you and I circle up and we get uh, some relevant links in the show notes so people can find you yep. and find uh, those those contact information for Dogtra. All right, next question. This comes from Kyle in Michigan. It's it's along the lines of GPS, and this may be it's kind of futuristic, kind of looking forward. So if there if there's nothing that you can really speak to significantly, that's okay. But he was just he kind of was asking about the vision for GPS collars moving forward, which is kind of, it's kind of vague, I guess, but I suppose like anything else with the, with the technology improving, I mean, we almost, we almost don't know what it's, what's going to, what they're going to look like five, 10 years from now, but are there any themes or undercurrents that you see that you think are really going to influence GPS collars moving forward? I, I don't know of anything, you know, on a, on a big picture right now, Nick, you yeah. know, that would influence the, the whole sector. But again, you know, one one thing I might say is uh, 10 years ago, who would ever figured we'd see a, a darn uh, GPS e-collar function through my an app on a cell phone? Right, right. You know, so think about that in just eight, 10 years times as that would have been unheard of. Uh, you're going to see some things that I can't talk about coming out from Dogtra that uh, they should keep an eye on in our GPS sector that I think are going to be exciting. And um, we're always updating the app. That's one of the neat things about the the system that we have is that when we find things that we want to add or change, uh, it's just a matter of having the app developers update the app. And then it's like any app you have on your phone. You get a notification that it, it can, needs to be updated and you update it. And you get different features and functions. If we get some bugs in it, we, we, uh, which happens with, with this technology, we do an update. So, but you will see some interesting things coming out in the next year, I believe from, from Dogtra that, uh, some many viewers have been clamoring for since they've seen the Pathfinder. Um, and so that'll be, that'll be kind of fun when people, uh, when we start introducing that, but I don't see anything really, you know, earth shaking coming about, uh, in, in the sector itself. Not, not that I'm aware of, but, um, I may hang up the phone here and hear something tomorrow. You know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think I think the one thing that we know for sure is that there will be things that hit the market in the next five years that we did not imagine would be on the market in five years, I'm guessing. You, you just look at technology in general, Nick. Yeah. I mean, just think about how much we use our phones and all that stuff. Sometimes it's it's good and sometimes it's bad. Yep. But uh um, and I personally, uh, I, I, I like the GPS. Uh, I don't have a huge need for it. Sure. But if I had to pick one or the other, there's no question in my mind for my type of hunt, my type of hunting, that beeper unit is what goes with me. And, uh, and I don't, I don't need the GPS just for the style of hunting. Cause I, I need to know where my dog's at. I don't, I don't ever let them get that far out. And, uh, I'm, I'm a foot hunter, so to speak. Sure. So, but they're, they have been, uh, hugely popular, like I said, with the hound market. And, um, and that's, that just seems to be growing by leaps and bounds. So, yeah. All right. Next question. JP from Minnesota would love to know another Pathfinder question. He would love to know yep. about the geofence feature on the Pathfinder. Sure. Maybe, uh, what is it? How does it work? Well, the geofence, uh, is, is a separate feature within the Pathfinder app that I can, uh, put down a, a, uh, a, a fence, so to speak. And let's say if uh, you and I 
were, were hunting in a, in a particular area and we knew that we didn't want our dog to cross over this particular boundary into a neighbor's property, I can create a, a geofence that will give me an alert back to my phone uh, when the dog uh, gets near that and crosses it so that I would know uh, that, that he's on my neighbor's property or up near a road or something like that. This, uh, and, and I can, I can make this by just tapping and holding and making different points on my phone screen. And then it becomes my geofence. And, and when I don't want it, I just delete it. Um, so that's how, how that works. It's, there's a little bit of confusion. And I answer this question, uh, quite a bit in, in any given month, uh, for Dogtra, a lot of people, see this as something that geofence and they think gosh i could take this and make it similar to an un- underground containment you know like a hardwired fence system yeah. for for my dog in suburbia and a couple things it it y- you could do it but it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a good thing and to do and i'll tell you why in a minute because of the gps sway so let's say i got a one acre lot and a lot of people what they we get these ideas in and say well, why don't you make it so the dog gets stimulation when he gets near the geofence? Ours doesn't do that. You get a pop-up window on your phone, and you can stimulate the dog then yourself if that's what you want. But ours does not act like a, a containment system or what a lot of people would call an invisible fence, mm-hmm. where the dog gets close to that buried wire, and the radio signal triggers the receiver, and the dog gets stimulation, and you keep him in the boundary. Ours does not do that. And at this point, because of the technology that we have, it probably never will, and here's why. If we take that geofence and set it up on a, on a one-acre, two-acre, five-acre lot somewhere in suburbia, remember what I talked about earlier was something that is called G- GPS sway, which means that that signal can move around. And guess what? If we had it set up near a road and, and we get this GPS sway, sways out 20 feet onto a road, that means my dog is going to be out onto the road 20 feet, and guess what? It'll be lights out. Yeah. So the technology that we have that right now people say, well, why don't you do this? You know, it's just, it'd be so simple to do it. Uh, you know, it's, it's never quite as what, simple as what people think, but that's the reason that you're at this point, you're never going to see this thing being able to be turned into a containment system is because of the GPS way. Now, maybe big picture back to the earlier question, maybe somewhere along the line, something changes with, with uh, GPS signal and they, they are able to identify it and make it so it doesn't sway. But I'll give you an example, Nick. If you've got a GPS unit like a Pathfinder, activate the unit and just hang it on a fence post or hang it on a tree somewhere and leave it hang there. And uh, you you go about your business for the next half hour or so. And then you go look at your phone and see how much movement that thing shouldn't move at all because you've got the collar hanging on a right. on a uh, on a nail on a tree outside or on a fence. And you're going to see just how much that GPS sways. It'll be all over where up here where I'm at. I've done it, and there's I've seen it sway 50 feet already. Yeah. Yeah, so that's so, that's really a safety thing for the dogs. It just it the technology yeah. while the technology is awesome and it's great, it's just it's not for that purpose yet. Yeah, you are correct. It's just got its limitations, Nick, and and maybe somewhere along the line it will. Yeah. Uh, maybe they maybe that will. So, yep. uh, and that would be great. I mean, I uh, I think that you know what a, we've got we've been working on ideas like this is how we could come up with a true invisible fence so to speak a fence that doesn't have to be hardwired because the hardwired systems that you put underground are very susceptible to damage you know moles gophers chipmunks uh chew on the coating of the wire and disrupt the uh the radio signal and so if you had some way to develop a true uh gps type coordinates around your your property that was able to do it without the hardwire would really really be great but right now the technology doesn't permit that all right 
Next question. We just got a couple more here for you, Pete. Next question. This was asked by John. Not sure where John's from. Miles, I believe, is from Texas. A couple guys wanted to know, will the Pathfinder be compatible with any smartwatches? As uh, I know that uh, the competitor, one of the competitor products is compatible with the, you know, their, their watch. Yep. So I, that's where people yep. are coming from that. Um, anything with the Pathfinder? I, you know, I, I haven't seen anything. Okay. Um, if, if I have seen something and I couldn't say anything, I, I'd probably say something like no comment. Sure, but sure. I have not seen that. We've had the question posed to us. Uh, so as an example, uh, the Apple watch, you know, where you'd be able to basically just see the, the direction, you know, based off of the a compass, which direction your dog is, um, that would be something that they may work on in the future. We've had that question posed to us a number of times. They are aware of it. I, I, I don't know that they're working on it right now, but not to say they, they, we couldn't see something in the next six to eight months, but I personally haven't seen it. Yeah. You know, that's, that's kind of an interesting question because for the the competitor product, they don't have an app on the phone, so they have their you know they have the handheld and the collar. They yep. don't have an app on the phone, so the watch thing is kind of neat. But really, with the Pathfinder, you've already got you've got it on your smartphone, and I I understand you know taking your phone out of your pocket is different than looking at your watch. But I I would suspect yep. that the gap between that app on the phone and getting it on say like an Apple Watch is pretty small. So who knows? Maybe uh maybe that could be in the future. I'd like to think the same thing, but you're talking to a dog guy, not a <laughs> right. Not a, uh... <laughs> <laughs> engineer i'm not Again, an engineer or an app developer either so oh my god <laughs> you know you know we get some we get some debates going on on some of our social media sites and uh and and with people telling us how to build stuff and you know sometimes i just chuckle at it nick and i think you know uh i see these individuals say well you should do this and this and this and then one of the owners of the company always thinks you know people think that it's just as easy as baking oh, yeah. a different kind of chocolate chip cookie compared to an oatmeal raisin what you do is you just throw the oatmeals and raisins in this one and don't throw the chocolates. It's not quite that easy when you're dealing with (laughs) this type of product. Uh, And, you know, one of the other things that, you know, and I can't say this to people, but I think it, I think as I'm reading some of their comments, I think, well, if you think it's so easy, why don't you go build your own electric training collar? (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) It's so simple. So, but I I would agree with you that, um, that, that is something that we could see in the future. Cause I think the, the uh, the ability to do what you just described because we already have the phone uh, in place to, to somehow make it so that it would have an app that would run you know back through the watch but you would be limited to what you could do really it would just be probably directional yes uh, through your yeah. compass so you'd know which direction your dogs have gone so yeah. that that is something that could be done I don't, I'm not aware of it though in in the immediate future yeah. All right, Pete, last one here for you. A good, honest question from Mark from South Carolina. He's been on the podcast before. He wants to know, this is right in your wheelhouse, how do we determine, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but how do we determine the proper stimulation level when we're using the, these remote training callers? Well, again, great, great question. And I always tell people, let's start out low and work our way up. And because it's easier to, to do that than to start high and work our way down once we've already got the dog spooked or starting to shut down from too much stimulation. So I always start fairly low. And on the dog trip products, we have what's on most of them, we have what's called a rheostat. So that's like a volume knob on a radio. It goes zero to 127. And I typically start out about level five to 10. And I like momentary stimulation. That's the that quarter second burst of energy. You can hold it down as long as you want, but you're only going to, the only way you get more is let up and tap it again. So yeah. I personally like the momentary because I think it's a more controlled type of stimulation. And I think for an individual that's just starting out using a remote training collar for the first time conditioning his dog, 
uh, it's easier to understand and he's going to get in less trouble. If I'm standing there teaching somebody to use the remote training call and I say, okay, push the button and it's on the constant mode, probably the first thing he's going to say to me is for how long? Mm-hmm. Yep. I tell him to push the Nick button. I know that he can hold it as long as he wants. The dog only got that less than quarter second burst of energy. And if he want more, he let up and tap it again. So to answer the, his, his question is that I start off fairly low. And when I'm conditioning that dog, so let's go back and talk about what we t- talked about uh, early on in the podcast was on recall. And I've got that dog on the long rope or the leash. I know that he knows the hear command and I'm going to tap that button to reinforce it. I might have it set at level 10 to start with. I may not see any any inclination that he felt it at all. But what am I typically looking for? A head head and eyebrow twitch. You might see him blink his eyes. You might see him bob his head. Those would be cock his ears. I'm okay with that. I don't need to I don't need to see or hear the dog yelping or spinning in circles and say, hell yeah, he felt that. I actually want to go just the opposite direction. I'm only going to use enough stimulation to get my point across. It's it's a low level of stimulation. And what I said earlier in the podcast was is uh, low level stimulation, but it's long term behavior management. We just keep doing this over and over and over so that when he when he hears the at some point when he hears the hear command, uh, he feels the stimulation without it ever being touched without <laughs> the button being touched. You know, yeah. it's just the, the reaction. And then he knows that the, the positive reinforcement comes with when he complied with it. So start out at a fairly low level and watch for those those indicators. Uh, you know, the, the head twitching, the blinking, if you get a dog to vocalize again, turn it down then. Yep. Great stuff, Pete. All right, man, let's leave it there. There's obviously plenty more we could talk about. I think it would make a lot of sense to have you back on the podcast, uh, sometime in the future. And, uh, I'd be happy to do that. So today, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for all the great information. I think this will do the listeners very well and we definitely appreciate it, Pete. Sounds good. It was fun to be on. And uh, if they've got questions, they can sure do a follow up. Well, uh, if you put some links on there, the easiest way to uh, get a hold of me is through the, the doctor.com uh, just in the subject line, put attention, Pete, um, or uh, through our Facebook page or you can find me on Facebook and, and I'll connect with you. How's that? But appreciate you having me on, Nick. Sounds good, Pete. I'll make sure those links are in the show notes. Thank you so much. Stay, uh, stay warm, get shoveled out and have a great rest <laughs> yeah. of the week, buddy. Yeah, remember, lift with your legs. This is heavy snow. <laughs> That's right. All right, All right. Take care. All right. Thanks. See you. You've been listening to the Project Upland Podcast. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And a reminder that this podcast was brought to you by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, Dog Trick Callers, Yukonuba Dog Food, Gordian Sons Outfitters, and Dakota 283 Kennels. Find more podcasts, articles, films, and much more at projectupland.com. Thanks again for listening, everybody. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Project Upland Podcast.
Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.